So, anything happened around the church while I was gone the last two weeks? <laughs> well, I celebrate with you the vote over Pastor Paul. I could not be more excited for the future of Watermark Wesleyan, and uh, what an incredible gift in that way. And uh, thank you for your prayers and this concern. Our family stayed COVID-free except for Silas, who was in the basement. And uh, we called him our COVID kid, or Igor, when we would put food at the top of the stairs and he would come up in the darkness of night and grab the food and go back down. And, uh, but we stayed COVID-free, so praise God for that. Thanks for the prayers and the protection in that way. So uh, I'm, I'm going to use that kind of concept here to kick off week five here. We're going to continue in our 100-day challenge in which we're learning the backstory of Jesus, otherwise known as the Old Testament. We're only really kind of just the beginning, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. So today we look at Leviticus, really uh, not much. We looked at numbers last week and Deuteronomy because we're going to look at the law. See, here's the deal. We've been learning that God wanted to find a people and he wanted to raise them up to really rescue and save the world. There's only one problem with that plan. People are a problem. <laughs> People sin. People are messy. And they sinned. And so God established a law to set them apart as pure. Here's the deal about pure life. Uh, purity, I don't think as Americans we really understand what it means to be pure. Let, let me just talk about germs for a minute or the FDA and how they establish, uh, well, what is certified pure. Uh, did you know that the FDA says in our food it is still certified pure when there is one insect fragment in one gram of macaroni? So if you guys have macaroni and cheese, good luck with that this afternoon. Or 10 fly eggs and two maggots are allowed in most tomato products. So enjoy your pizza as well. Ah, that's just, and that's certified pure. That is crazy. In peanut butter, we are allotted four rodent hairs per 100 grams of peanut butter. How was your toast this morning? <laughs> Coffee beans. Oh no, all of you addicted to caffeine. Oh, this is not good. Did you know that 10% of beans are infected with some kind of insect? And that is still considered pure. Uh, hot dogs. <laughs> if I talked about the impurities, you'd have nothing left. So we'll just move on from that. But you, you get the point. God is establishing his people and he's saying, I'm going to set you apart as pure. Well, does that mean that we can still have like a few sinful rodent hairs? Can we still have? No, with God, he says, I'm not the FDA. I will establish in your life perfection. Well, that, that's a terrible problem. That's a terrible plan in God's part because people are people and people mess up and they were prone to wander. I want to take you back as we get into Leviticus and Deuteronomy and look at the law that God establishes as he wants to take his people into a place of changing the fallen world. Look at how it's worded. I'm going to take you back to Exodus 19 when God first showed them his plan. And you've already read this, but I'm going to read it again for us. Then Moses went up to God. This was right at Mount Sinai. This is at the time of the Ten Commandments. And the Lord called to him from the mountain and he said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. 
You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings, and I brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites, God says to Moses. So God establishes right from the beginning this whole concept of I'm going to set you apart. I'm going to make you holy. Now, let me just make holiness very simple to to conceive of. Holy simply means to be set apart as different from the way everybody else is functioning. For example, my daughter who, um, she's in college and she likes to cook and bake and she's um, studying uh, around food quite a bit. And she actually, well, before the pandemic more than now, but anytime she would entertain friends, she would make these wonderful desserts and this really fun kind of party food and stuff. And every time, without fault, she would put uh, like some cellophane over it and then she would put, dad, don't touch it was always against me. Not fair. The brothers are just as bad as me, but I always get the blame. But what was she doing? She was setting this food apart as holy. It's, it is special. This is very important. And that's what God is doing with the children of Israel. He's saying, this world has rebelled against me. Remember what we talked about in week one, you know, God wants to rule the world through humans, but humans are the problem. And so God now wants to establish a new way of us relating to God. And so he establishes the law. And I want to take you into that today because what I want to show you, because I know sometimes when people think, oh, the law, and some of you, you knew we were doing Leviticus and you're like, oh, this is going to be a hard sermon to listen to because the law, Leviticus, I, I'm always good reading Genesis and Exodus, and, but then I get to Leviticus and I just seem to not really keep my reading plan up. Well, because we misunderstand the purpose of the law. I want to give you the three, I believe, core purposes to why God establishes the law for us. The first one, and so as you do your reading this week, read these laws through these filters, if you will. The first one is this. The law reveals the heart of God. Instead of looking at it as a parent who says, thou shall not, and you're going to be in trouble, mister. You're going to be in trouble, missy. If you do the things that are wrong, stop and realize, wait a minute, God showed us and established these 613 laws because he wants to show us what he values. You see, God values health. You're going to see a lot of laws about your health. He values property. He values disputing neighbors. He values unity in that. So he teaches us how to deal with these things. He values that you have cleanliness in your life. You you see in the heart how to have proper worship. God shows us how to approach him in a very healthy and reverent way. The law is not something to say, yawn, oh my, 613 laws, you know. God is saying, no, this is my heart. These are things that I value. Why wouldn't we want to learn what God's heart values? 
I want to take you a little bit deeper into this for a moment. Yeah. You uh, maybe, well, I'm sure you've heard of the Ten Commandments, of course, but have you ever seen even like the, the movie The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston? And you remember when he's coming down off the mountain and he's got those two huge scrolls and he's carrying these tablets and he's, you know, walking down and, and he's got these two tablets. And what's interesting to me is that we always assume that there's five commandments and five commandments on both of these covenant, on these tablets. That is certainly not the case. That, that's a misrepresentation of how the ancient Near Eastern culture functioned. In that culture, if you had an agreement between you and another party, you would establish two written documents. And this party would receive one, and we would receive one. What's fascinating in the Exodus story, when we see God give Moses his tablet, in essence, what is God saying when he gives away his documentation agreement? He's saying to Moses and to all of his children of Israel, you know what he's saying? Wherever you go, I will be with you because I want to stay near my covenant agreement with you. To get even further with that, see, we're seeing the heart of God. He's not establishing laws just to get us in trouble. Do you realize sin is not sin because God wrote it on a tablet? Sin is bad because sin is bad. So God wrote down what will cause you to stumble and to be broken in fellowship with God. So he establishes this covenant and he has these commandments and he has these laws that he wrote down because he says, these things will separate you and me. And so I want to make sure that wherever you go, I will be with you. And then when Moses gets mad and throws a hissy fit, you know, because he gets mad at the, his uh, fellow Israelites, he throws the tablets down and he breaks them. And then we see God rewrite the tablets because he's so into showing you, okay, <laughs> We've got a long way to grow up here. We're going to figure this out together. The grace of God is seen right at the beginning of the whole story of of God working with his children. It's a phenomenal story. So the law shows us the heart of God right from the beginning. There's a second one, and this one is the meaty part. And so uh, those of you that like maybe lecture and professor kind of stuff, I just want to take you into the second point in a little bit more detail. The law establishes how people are to live in community with one another. So first, the law shows the heart of God. We see what God values. Secondly, we see how to live together as community. There's actually, as you think of the law, a lot of times people think, well, it's just the law. You either obey it or, or there's nothing, right? There's actually three components to the law which you need to relate to in different ways. Let me explain what I mean. Of the three categories, I'm going to talk about the first one, the civil law. This is how we live in civilization. I mean, if you think about it, we've got a new nation, the nation of Israel. Pastor Steve talked about it with when Jacob was wrestling with God and then God renamed him. The first time we see the name Israel comes through a broken man who gets renamed and the birth of Israel happens. And now so the children of God through the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is moving through the story and you watch God, I'm going to have to govern my children. And we behave like children, right? We're real young and, and naive and so he has establishes civil law. 
And so as he governs this nation, I want to just show you a couple. There's many, 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 but he talks about, again, this shows his value, about work. He shows us how to have healthy work environments. Here's one of the laws, Deuteronomy 24, 14. Do not take advantage of a hired worker. So if you're an owner or a manager, don't take advantage of that hired worker who is poor and needy. Whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns, pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and counting on it. What, is, what do we see here in this one of these, just one of the many laws of the 613? We see God saying, go the extra mile. I mean, it's a teaching Jesus gives thousands of years later. Uh, germs. Do you realize in that time we didn't understand germs? We didn't understand germs till just uh, several several years ago in our you know in our couple of generations here. Now listen to this: a man who has lost his hair, anyone, anyone, uh, look at what it says about you, is bald. They are considered clean. You're welcome. I mean, some of you are very clean. I see that. That's fantastic. What is God saying here? They didn't probably understand about lice. They didn't understand about germs. We see lots of detail in the scriptures about blood, for example, and how to handle blood because we didn't understand that there were microscopic organisms that can cause harm and and problems. And so God establishes and shows, I want to protect you and protect you from one another and help one another. And so if you're bleeding, you're unclean for this season. And so we've since learned how how to handle these things and stuff, but in the early days, not so much. Or this one, what about your health? Uh, Deuteronomy 14. But anything that does not have fins or scales, you may not eat, for it is unclean. Uh Uh-oh, now I'm meddling. I shouldn't have brought this one up. Like shrimp lovers, lobster lovers. Oh, dear. Uh, Then he actually goes on to say you can't have pork. Like, this is crazy. What is God thinking? Well, if you think about it again, God was trying to establish health for his people. And those creatures are actually creatures that move along the bottom of the ocean that actually are bottom dwellers to keep the ocean clean. Oh, that's gross. You're eating kind of garbage disposals. And if you eat pig, pig, same thing. They're kind of eating kind of the garbage. They eat anything. Their stomachs can digest anything. And so, but here's the good news before you kind of throw me off the stage saying, get Paul out here. No, we can't wait another month with this guy. Mark chapter seven says it this way. Jesus said, I declare all food clean. And what he was saying in essence is it's not about what you eat on the inside because your physical body's gonna die anyway. It's, it's what comes out of your heart that matters. God cares more about your attitude toward other people rather than eating something that might have a, some impurities in it in that way from a physical standpoint. I had a, a friend, uh, a doctor uh, who was a Christ-following doctor who really established in his life and in his medical practice how to follow the Old Testament dietary laws and he really studied about the impurities of lobster and, and I'll, I'll shut up there, you know, and um, the impurities of pork and bacon and stuff. Because my son, like we all love bacon in our household and it's like, oh, this is so hard and thank God for turkey bacon, right? We're so happy, you know, but th- this is interesting here. Um, he said, you know, um, Jesus declared it clean, so it's not going to keep you out of heaven. So eat bacon, it won't keep you out of heaven. It actually might help you get there faster. <laughs> so, but my point is to tell you, the laws are not written just to trip you up. 
The laws are written to make you whole and healthy and to protect you. So when you read your reading this week in the 100 Day Challenge, read it from a standpoint of it shows me the heart of God and it also shows me how to love my neighbor and how to love myself as I love others as I, as I love myself. You see, God is establishing a healthy way to live in a broken and fallen world. So he established the civil law. There's two other types of law. The second one is, is called the ceremonial law. In the ceremonial law, this is when we gather for times of worship. In Jerusalem, seven different times they would gather for, for feasts and festivals. And, and even in their homes where they were at, they would have different offerings to the Lord. And this was their way of worshiping God properly. And God knew that we were sinful, and so God had to establish a sacrificial way for us to come into relationship. Because I don't think any one of us could follow a God who wouldn't punish evil. I mean, if something happens, you know, somebody cuts you off in traffic, don't you love it when they get pulled over by that cop? You know, it just feels like so good, right? You, there's a justice sense in us. Well, it's the same kind of thing. If God doesn't punish evil, how can we honor a God who doesn't see good from evil and go after evil? That makes a lot of sense to me. And so God says, well, we are all evil because we've rebelled against God in different ways, so we need to be punished as much as anybody else needs to be punished. And so God came up with a plan. Well, punish something. So God would put his wrath on an animal. And he had five different offerings that we would offer to be able to come into beautiful relationship with God because a perfect relationship, you think about light and darkness can't coexist. So if you have darkness in you, any impurities, right? Rodent hairs or whatever, impurities, you're separated because you have darkness in you. And so the light destroys you. So what does God have to do? He has to turn you into light, into perfection. How does he do that? Well, he established the law these ceremonial laws. I'll give them to you quickly. There's five different, you can read them in more detail this week. But the the first one is a burnt offering. The burnt offering is when you have clearly sin in your household or in your life and you just sacrifice this animal. And you would take an animal, and this was during a festival, and you would actually do a burnt offering in the morning and in the evening. And this is a really intimate sacrifice. You would put your hands on the head of the goat or the bull or the ram or the lamb and you would put your hand on it and as it was being sacrificed and it was dying, you were caring for the pain that that is enduring and as it's dying, you're feeling the weight of the guilt of what you've done, the sin in your life and there's a transference, if you will, of this animal is taking my punishment. The wrath that I deserve is going on this animal. This animal wasn't allowed to be eaten. It would be burned to a crisp. It was only offered to God. And this was done during times of festival so that we were pure before God. There's another type of offering. It's called the grain offering. This was an offering that was like a first fruits, like a Thanksgiving time. Lord, you've been so good to us and you've been so bountiful and blessing. We want to offer our first fruits. A sense of tithe came from this. This is why we give during worship. When we give, we're saying, God, I'm so grateful. I've been blessed. I want to be a blessing to others. And so they would offer their grain and they would, they would feast together. The third type is called the sin offering. The sin offering, again, somewhat like the burnt offering, is offered in the place of any of your unknown sins. 
And so you would sacrifice this animal. You would find an unblemished animal, which is simply interesting because when Jesus later gets crucified, just before his crucifixion, they study Jesus and they ask him all these questions. Where do you come from? From where do you get your authority? They're studying the lamb. They're, and they didn't even know it at the time. The, G, the, the Jewish high priests were, in essence, looking at an unblemished lamb who was going to take the sacrifice for all of those unintentional and intentional sins. And so we would offer a sin offering during this time as well. There's also the guilt offering. The guilt offering are, is really for any sin you have committed, that you know you committed. And this one's intense because it's a public moment where you go before your friends and family and before your church and you would say, I have committed these sins. And then you have to pay 20% restitution above and beyond that which you say you stole properties from someone. But this would be an offering as well to the Lord for all of your intentional sin, which is interesting because it would be a lamb or a ram. And imagine years later when John the Baptist stands up in front of all the Jewish folk and he says, there, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For your whole life growing up before the time of Jesus, you would bring a lamb to offer as your sin offering. And then John the Baptist is crying out, there is the lamb of God for the sin of the world. Imagine how that rearranged everybody's furniture in their head. What is that? That is incredible. Well, it's God now establishing a sacrificial system for all time. That's why our altars are not filled with blood today. Because Jesus was that sin offering for us. Or then the last one, there's a fifth type during ceremonial law. It's called the fellowship or the peace offering. And this is when the whole family comes together and they just party. And they bring 10% of their tithe and they put money together and they celebrate. It's an incredible story. So you can read more about this for yourself. But this is an offering to the Lord where God wants to see us in fellowship. That's why I'm so grateful for the online technology that we can still be in fellowship because God smiles when we're in fellowship. And for all of you here today, it's so beautiful to see you and the gift of being able to be in community. The fellowship is such a gift. And so ceremonial law. So we've seen civil law, ceremonial law, And then the final one is the moral law. This is pretty obvious because it's, well, you know, the Ten Commandments, you know, thou shall not kill, thou shall not um, steal from each other, uh, honor your father and mother. We hear the moral law and we think, (laughs) so simple. And you may read it this week and be like, yeah, I know this stuff. How did the Israelites not know this? But you need to realize we've been living for 3,500 years as a people under a Judeo-Christian, later of the last 2,000 years, ethic. This ethic of these 3,500 years of what is good and what is not good morally is in our blood. I mean, we've owned it for all of this time. But in their day... It was barbaric. They would sacrifice children to Molech. There was temple prostitution. There was all sorts of evil debauchery throughout their land. It was a barbaric age. And so when God established the law, you may read the moral law and say, everybody knows this stuff. No, they didn't know this stuff. This is the heart of God showing through, saying, I want you to be morally healthy. I want you to have ceremonial connection with me. 
And I want you to be civilized toward one another. So God wrote the law to teach us how to get along and how to get along with God and how to get along with each other. It's a beautiful thing. And so I hope you don't yawn this week during your reading, okay? I hope you don't fall asleep during it. I hope you really engage it because it shows us so much about how to interact in a world that frankly, we haven't gotten it right yet. <laughs> Let's just admit it. There's so much tension in our, in our country. And I think a lot of it is just because we haven't truly cared for and lifted one another up appropriately, which leads to the third point. And really, I could have skipped the other two, but the professor had in me kind of wanted to come out and share that stuff with you. And so I know that kind of, is like, ooh, that's a lot of stuff to digest. I'm gonna have to rewatch this or I'm gonna have to think about this more. This third point is really the point to the law. If you get this one, everything else will make sense. The law says this, the law makes us aware of our sin and our need for a savior, period. That's the point to the law. The point of the law is to help us realize I will never measure up to the perfection of God's standard. Yeah, I know we compare our lives to other people. <laughs> I get that. I do the same thing. I'm not as bad as him. I'm not as bad as her. But that's not what God is comparing us to. God has set a standard of perfection. You want to be light in the midst of a dark world, right? You've got any darkness in you at all. A shred of sin, a little bit of impurity will still make you dark against the light of God. And if you want to be in the presence of the light of Christ, you will be consumed if you have darkness. So we are aware, the more you read Leviticus, the more you start realizing, I need a savior. I can't do this on my own. I'm never going to make it and I'm never going to stand up to be able to, to fit to this place. You know, I, I hear people say, I can't wait to get to heaven because it's going to be so beautiful and be able to praise God and see Jesus face to face. And yes, that covering of the lamb, of the blood of the lamb shed for us is beautiful and so good. But here's what's interesting about this. Every time we see people come face to face with God, well, let me give you an example. I want to go back to Exodus 19 where we were at. Just jump ahead to one chapter, Exodus 20. When the people saw the thunder and the lightning, so Moses came down off the mountain. He had the Ten Commandments and, um, and now God is showing up. And they heard the trumpet and they saw the mountain in the smoke. They trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance. Isn't that fascinating? We're so quick to say, I can't wait to be face-to-face -face with God. And yes, because of Jesus, we do have access to God. But you realize any unholiness, any unrepentant of sin causes a reaction of fear. Moses, when he went before the very presence of God, it says that he turned his face away. When, when uh, in 1 Samuel, see the Ark of the Covenant and they're carrying the very presence of God, whenever that was opened, the people didn't go, let me go see God. They ran away in fear. They put their faces down to the ground. We are unholy. When Isaiah got a glimpse, uh, just a glimpse of the robe of God in the temple, he says, I am a man of unclean lips. I am a sinner. I mean, Isaiah, who wrote part of our scriptures, I mean, this man fell before the Lord saying, I am unholy before you, God. And you say, those are all Old Testament examples. Well, Peter, Peter stood before Jesus and he said, I am a sinner, get away from me, Lord. When he, be, when he became aware of his sin, he couldn't think of anything else but to get away from God. And so your sin is deeply affecting your ability to be in the presence of God. 
And, I, and so we have this incredible image here of, uh, well, the law putting a standard out there for, to, for us to realize I need help. I can't live perfectly. I need help. I need a savior. And so this is what I love about this whole concept. The recognition of our sin is honestly the perfect path to holiness. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? When you recognize you're sinful, that's actually how you start to find holiness. I know we're quick to want to run away and hide and ignore and say, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine. I have no issues in my life at all. But do you realize that separates you from God even further? But it's when you come to the place of confessing your sin before God. Uh, we learn in, in 1 John, he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He'll bring you into fellowship. But that's, that's the point. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a woman who has turned my back on God. I don't meet up to the standard, to the law. God, bring me into relationship. And there's only one way. You need to be saved. You need a savior. That's actually, if you look at the reading plan, you're going to actually see that we included some New Testament reading this week, intentionally, obviously, because Galatians summarizes the law for us. And I want to pull this all together by reading this to you. In, in uh, Galatians chapter 3, listen to what it is written. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Wait a minute, didn't Ken just say I'm supposed to read Leviticus this week and study the law? And Well, if you study the works of the law, it says you're under a curse. What? As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. What is the book of the law? Well, the Torah, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. If you don't follow those laws, you're under a curse. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Pause there. We'll come back to this in a second. What's happening here? What is, what is Paul in Galatians writing about what our reading plan is this week? He's writing about the law and he says, cursed are you if you obey the law. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, what he's saying here is the curse is a law, the, the law of God. Obeying God's law is a curse because of this. One, it says, you're not going to live by faith if you live by the law. So here's what he's saying. Paul is saying, after thousands of years have gone by, what have we learned about the law? People who try to obey the law don't need God. Because they're going around saying, I am perfect. But nobody has ever lived perfectly under the law. Everybody has eventually committed one of the sins. Be it they, you know, they didn't follow one of the even dietary laws. So everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So he says, if you think that your behavior is going to get you into heaven, is going to get you into the presence of God, you're a fool. You're cursed. For you live by faith in Jesus Christ alone. I'll explain that in just a second. And then secondly, it's impossible. We've all fallen. And so there's no way that anybody can ever measure up. And so you're cursed if you think, I'm going to behave my way into God's presence. And that's what he's saying here. Let's continue on. Next verse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He carried your curse. 
For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. So he carried, he died for us, right? He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith, we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So every time I've done this Bible study with people, they say, okay, wait, 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 wait. Does this mean that the law is dead? I, I don't understand. So the, clearly it's bad to follow the Old Testament laws, right? Is that what this is saying? Uh, no, not necessarily. Is the law dead? No, because Jesus says later in Matthew 5, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets for I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Well, what does it mean to fulfill the law of Christ? What does it mean to fulfill the law of the Old Testament? Well, it means simply this. God's whole point to writing the law is one, you'll realize I need a savior. It'll also prove this. God wants to put it on your heart. It's always been about your heart. It's always been about intimacy with him. It's always been about that close personal relationship with the Lord. Look at this. This this is a promise from Jeremiah 31. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and on their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. You see, the, the law, the Old Testament, the story of God is not just God trying to trip us up, putting all these written script down for us to behave. It's a love story. It always has been. God had a love story with Adam and Eve, an intimate relationship. But when they sinned and fell short of God's standard, from that point on, God went after them and tried to save them. And he tried to, remember, in weeks to come, we'll show the ups and the downs and the the loop-de-loops and all this story of God and how God's story is a roller coaster. But all of it is God pursuing us in an intimate relationship with him. And so God has always wanted to get his law on your heart. And there's only one way to do that, to have someone else take our punishment. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he was the final sacrifice, the final high priest. Everything was placed on him, the wrath of God. So when God looks at you, he sees all of these laws and all these standards that you don't measure up to. And he says, but I'm not looking at you. I'm looking at my son, Jesus, who died as a sacrifice over you to cover you. You are loved. And now I've made a way the way into intimate love relationship with me. And here's the incredible news in all of this. He invites us now to eat with him, to have fellowship with him. It's always been about the intimate relationship. So when you read the law of God, realize it's always been a love story of him saying, I just want to protect you, my child. I just want to protect you, my child. I just want to protect you. I love you. And I want to write all of this on your heart so that you obey me, not to get to me, but you obey me as a response of love in return. And so I obey the law of God, Old Testament, New Testament. I try to obey the law of God as best I can because it's been fulfilled in Jesus. And so as I look at Jesus, it's all written into my heart. And I get to just obey out of response, not out of some treasure map trying to figure out how to get to Christ. It's an incredible gift. And so he invites us to the table. He invites us to an intimate relationship with him. 
And so I want to invite you to take out your communion elements. And for those of you at home right now, I'd invite you to uh, uh, get your juice and, and your bread and that we can fellowship at the table of Christ because he intimately invites us to sit at the table with him. Isn't that beautiful? We get to have fellowship with him. There's no way we'd be able to get there if you tried to earn it on your own favor. And so let's right now partake in the gift of, of the bread. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he, he took the bread and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And he, he tells us to take and eat. And uh, notice, he doesn't say it's broken for you. He comes to us whole. He fully gave himself. It actually says, my body which is given for you. He gives us all of him. This is an incredible gift of him saying, come to the table and eat. So this is a chosen meal that we get to have. So I'd invite you to pull off the cellophane and let me pray over this and we'll eat it together. Lord, I want to thank you for the bread that represents your body, which was this sacrificial lamb, the sin offering and the, the, the lamb that was slain for the forgiveness of sin. I don't take that lightly and I hope no one who hears my voice right now takes that lightly. And so as we partake in this communion and communion with you, we ask for your Holy Spirit to bless and anoint each one of our breads in, in our homes, uh, in this room right now. I pray, God, that we will be one as you have invited us to be one, as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. And so, God, thank you for being the sacrifice for us as we partake of your holy element now. In Jesus' name, amen. The body of Christ given for you, take and eat in remembrance of Jesus Christ. After the supper was over, he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. You no longer have to earn any, you don't have to show any, give me your life and I will make you holy and I will show you how to live. I will protect you from yourself. The new covenant, grace. He says, take and drink for the forgiveness of sin. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this gift. Thank you for the sacrifice. And I pray anyone who has struggled to wrestle and are like Jacob, wrestling with you, that you will bring them into the fold through the forgiveness of sin that you've offered for us on the cross as the incredible sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen.